Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. This is our 150th episode. I want to thank all of you for listening and keeping us going. And for our 150th episode, it is an honor to welcome MacArthur Fellow, National Book Award winning, Pulitzer Prize winning, and New York Times bestselling author Richard Powers. He is the author of a catalog of classics, including The Echo Maker and The Overstory. His new novel, is Bewilderment, which is published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Richard, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's my great pleasure, Jason. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Well, it's a tremendous honor to have you here, Richard. And first, before we dive into your excellent new novel, uh, I think it is important for our listeners to understand a bit about your background as it helps to know before diving into your work. When you entered your studies, at the University of Illinois, you entered as a physics major, but then you switched to English rhetoric. These fields are seemingly about as far apart as one can get <laughs> in academia. Uh, why enroll in physics and why then change to English? Oh, it's a great question. I was the kind of kid who wanted to do everything. And mm. I had a lot of you know, a, a lot of far-ranging interests and a lot of far-ranging abilities. You know, I, I toyed with the idea of being uh, a performing musician. You know, I play, I studied and played cello uh, and uh, other instruments as well growing up. I had a, a, a deep interest in mathematics and, you know, uh, puzzle solving and, and uh, that kind of uh, formal ingenuity really appealed to me. And that led outwards into various kinds of sciences. And at, at one time or another, when I was growing up, I, I had fantasies of being an oceanographer and a, and a geologist and, uh, uh, you know, a biologist. And you know, I, I really was panicked at the idea of, of having to choose one thing to do because it just meant closing a hundred other doors. You know, I, I, I was really the classic uh, generalist, and there, there, of course, is very little room in most professions for that kind of personality. Uh, you know, the the secret to success is to specialize early and and go deep and narrow. And I just I felt great great claustrophobia at that idea. And when I discovered writing, it was. Uh, an almost instant relief to think, well, here was a place where I could reinvent myself every few years in a different profession through vicariously through the people whose stories I was telling. Uh, and that felt extremely lucky. And there was another lovely thing about writing too. You know, when I, when I did consider pursuing physics and mathematics, I thought, you know, they're almost as bad as professional sports. You know, you do, you do your best work in your late 20s and you're, you're kind of uh, turned out to administrative pastures in your 30s. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit tongue in cheek about that, but I, I did look at writing and, and, and see these careers that extended, you know, well into middle age and old age and, and thought how lovely it would be to have a, a line of work where you could peak at, at 50 or beyond. And, you know, here I am at 64, finally figuring out how to, 
how to do this thing or, or uh, you know, exploring new ways of doing it after 40 years and uh, just feeling very, very lucky at the choice and very lucky at having had that, that rare opportunity to make a living at it. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Richard, do you still play music? I do. I, I, I'm a little limited now uh, where I live in, in uh, the mountains of Southern Appalachia, uh, just outside Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I, I, I'm a, I, it's a fairly isolated existence. Uh, I'm, I'm not a mountain hermit exactly, but I, I don't have a lot of contact with other people. So I, I, I've gone from those instruments that I played in the past, uh, like cello, that that need other uh, instruments to, to, to make satisfying music with, to uh, focus more on, on piano. I play piano every day now. You, you can, you, you're really much more self-contained. Uh, and that, that continues just to be a, a, a guiding joy and prince, organizing principle in my life. Excellent. Well, thank you, Richard. I'd love to hear you play sometime. Um, let's now dive into your excellent new novel, Bewilderment. And let me start by stating that this will be my best book of 2021. I'm calling oh. it early. Uh, so, yeah, thank you, Richard. I'm setting it in stone or in MP, MP4 form or what have you. Um, Bewilderment opens in the Smoky Mountains. Our protagonist is camping with his young son, Robin. Uh, Robin is troubled. His teachers think he needs to be medicated. Uh, his father does not. He says that life is something we need to stop correcting. Uh, why doesn't uh, our protagonist want his young son, Robin, to be medicated or even diagnosed? Well, there are the reasons that he gives. And then there is, of course, the, the reason that the, the readers may see that uh, Theo doesn't entirely see. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's it's complicated. I, 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 any any parent who has a child who's struggling with being alive is going to be himself very very frightened. And I, as a as a scientist, I think Theo is healthily skeptical about uh, putting too much stake in theories that are still in embryo or still developing. He knows that our understanding of mental health is is still very much a, a nascent uh, matter, and and our categories of diagnosis have changed very very rapidly in recent years. And I think he's just resisting replacing an understanding of his very distinctive, very individual son with a diagnostic category that will then be set in stone, and then. You know, will will be a kind of invitation to mistake the 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 the, the label for the person, and he has good grounds for that. I think uh, he's also quite uh, convinced that a, a a young child like Robin at nine years old, whose whose brain is still uh, rapidly forming. Uh, might not best be served with complicated uh, psychoactive drugs uh, that are often very much an experiment when you apply them to individual kids. So he's looking for alternatives uh, before 
capitulating to the conventional protocols. Uh, I, 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 at the beginning of the, the novel, uh, he is reacting to a doctor who says, your son is on the, the autism spectrum. And his, his response is, we are all on the spectrum. That's what a spectrum is. You know, the, the, a, a spectrum means the entire breadth of all kinds of minds with regard to uh, the, the qualities that we are isolating and, and concerned with. And I, I think there is something to say for that. You know, he, 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 he wants to point out that strangeness doesn't need to be cured. And that mm. different kinds of minds are, in fact, uh, a blessing, an asset. And shouldn't we look for ways of helping this boy that don't require making him more normative? Mm -hmm. Right, yes. And I think that the quote was, um, everyone alive on this fluke little planet is on the spectrum. Um, and that was a fantastic quote. Thank you, Richard. Um, Robin is searching for signs of life in the universe outside of Earth, uh, and he asks his father, Dad, with all of those places to live, how come nobody's anywhere? <laughs> what, is, what is the nature of young Robin's search for life in outer space? He's asking the, the classic question that's known as the Fermi paradox. And, you know, Enrico Fermi back in the 1950s, when it became, it was starting to become clear just how big and just how old the universe is. You know, he, 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 in, a, in a conversation about these incredible numbers involved, he just stopped at lunch one day at Los Alamos and said, if that's the case, where is everybody? And that's become known as the Fermi paradox. And it, you know, it remains uh, a, a, an intriguing and intractable uh, and provocative problem in the field of astronomy and astrobiology to, to the present. Um, Robin, of course, is interested because his father, uh, Theo, is an astrobiologist whose profession uh, consists of uh, developing techniques for determining biosignatures, the signs of, of, of life in the planets, uh, the, the atmospheres of exoplanets uh, using spectroscopy. Uh, but Robin, of course, is also driven by his struggle to understand and get along with other human beings. Uh, so the question of what is life? How pervasive is it? Is it everywhere in the universe? Are, are, are we alone? If we find it, will it be like us? Will it be so different from us that we can't even understand it? All of those questions that Theo asks professionally are resonant with Robin personally because it those very much characterize his struggle to get along on an earth that feels somewhat hostile to him and that treats him somewhat hostily. Uh, Theo uses this question of life on other planets as a kind of nightly therapy with Robin. Mm -hmm. In place of bedtime stories, he invents other planets that the, that the two of them can travel to together in their imaginations and explore just how different life might be on worlds where the conditions of life 
might be profoundly different. Mm-hmm. Right. Thank you, Richard. And I'm curious, um, along those lines, there's um, a lot of mention of games in this novel, and we'll have some more questions about that later. But um, have you ever seen the game No Man's Sky, which features a sort of uh, random planet generator for its players? You know, I'm an inveterate player of games, both in cardboard and on the screen, and I have been my whole life. And I think that's related to the kind of temperament uh, that I always had. I was a very strange boy myself and channeled my own childhood when creating Robin. Um, but the pe- people who incline toward mathematics and and, and, and science uh, and and people who incline toward the pattern searching that uh, underwrites music are often mm-hmm. um, uh, fascinated with uh, the puzzle aspect of, of, of games and uh, diversions. That said, I've seen the, the title No Man's Sky and I, and I, I'm sure I've seen stills, but I haven't actually played the game. I, I, I know of other uh, games in that genre of exploring uh, other planets, but uh, tell me a bit about No Man's Sky. Um, Well, it's just, um, I believe the program that it's built on is it's an open-ended game about space exploration and its engine randomly generates planets so that theoretically no two people will ever have the same experience Uh exploring these things. Um, Uh And that came to mind when I was reading about Theo's work. Um, Well, thank you, Richard. We'll have more questions about games when we return. Listeners, we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Richard Powers. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Richard Powers, author of Bewilderment, which is published by our friends at W.W. Norton and Company. Uh, Richard. I was referred to speak to you by my friend, Bill Volman. Uh, do you know Bill or was he speaking to me as a fan of your work? Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Um, I have followed Bill's career, an mm-hmm. incredibly uh, prolific career mm-hmm. uh, since the very beginning in his first novel, You Bright and Risen Angels. Mm-hmm. Um, we've only met once in life. We, uh, we, we shared a stage in Philadelphia when I was touring for Overstory. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he was uh, uh, touring for his big, uh, fat, nonfiction work on climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's an extraordinary imagination, and uh, I, I don't think I know of any living writer who can match him for 
for the, the, the scope and the energy and the, the, the size of, of uh, his output. Yeah, that's great. I believe he, he must have mentioned you after your event in Philadelphia. He was in North Carolina for those uh, climate change books, and he was back uh, a few weeks ago um, staying in town to do some research for a book he's writing about the CIA, I believe, in which he was uh, researching Fort Bragg here. Um, but thank you, Richard. Let's dive back into bewilderment now. Um, Robin's mother in this novel has passed away. And this is something that Robin and Theo grapple with in one way or another for the entirety of the story. Robin's mother, uh, Allie, had a prayer. May all sentient beings be free from needless suffering. What does this prayer tell us about Allie and about the eventual grip her own personal cause takes upon Robin? Her, Allie's prayer uh, derives from uh, the four immeasurables, which are uh, central to, to certain Buddhist traditions. Mm -hmm. And her work in animal activism is driven by this idea uh, that we have forgotten and neglected a kinship with the non-human, with the more than human. Uh, and it's that it's that loss of kinship. It's that uh, um, rise in the belief of human exceptionalism and autonomy and separation that has made uh, such a, a catastrophe of the planet. And uh, because she dies when Robin is so young, she dies when he's seven, mm. she becomes this enigmatic over, overpowering figure for him. He he needs desperately to remember who she is, to 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 know who she is, to to connect with her. But he has no direct way of doing that, and he's constantly uh, uh, asking his father to to remind him of who she was and what she was like. And of course, uh, for Theo, her loss is is also uh, the. A, a, a gaping hole in the center of who he is. And, um, he's still a young man. He's now raising this nine-year-old by himself. And the book becomes a kind of ghost story mm -hmm. where, where she's present but not reachable. And the reader only gets to know her through the, the, the fallible and fading memories of these, of these two males. Uh, and then the, the, the plot uh makes a surprising turn mm -hmm. and the, the the therapy that Theo enrolls Robin in this experimental therapy called decoded neurofeedback actually opens up the tantalizing possibility that Robin might learn through controlled feedback how to train his brain to match the patterns that his mother recorded of her own brain before death. Um, and the, the empathy that is uh, cultivated by this therapy, of course, loops back onto the empathy that Al Alyssa's entire vision of the world uh, 
was uh, formed on, was founded on. And, you know, to, 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 to go back to your original question about her, her nightly prayer, may all sentient beings be free from needless suffering. That's a plea for kinship. It's a plea for empathy. It's a, it's a suggestion of the kind of consciousness that we need to recover if we hope to continue much longer on a world that we've stood on its ear. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Richard. And I told you uh, there would be another question about games and um, alluding to this um, therapy that you're speaking of um, where Robin learns how to align his emotional state with that of um, his mother's recorded emotional state. Um, can you explain to us how this works and how it parallels the sort of instant feedback that Robin gets from, for example, his farming video game? Mm. So decoded neurofeedback is an actual uh, set of techniques mm -hmm. that uh, is in its infancy. I think it, uh, the, the, the first uh, papers being published about it are probably about a decade old. Mm -hmm. I, I first read about it in 2013. And it's, it's really extraordinary. Uh, the, the process involves, I mean, it, 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 it can unfold in many different ways, but the basic process involves recording one human being who's involved in learning a task or interacting with something or entering into an emotional state, recording using fMRI imaging, uh, a, a real-time uh, uh, image of the, the activity of a certain part of, of that subject's brain. Mm -hmm. That image then is saved and used as a kind of template for a second person who, when cued interactively uh, by the software using visual and auditory cues, approaches the, the, the same uh, neurological state. That is, the activities in the, in the second person uh, are, are gradually trained to approximate and shape uh, uh, and take on uh, similar characteristics to the activities in the in the initial recorded uh, brain, and it's a little bit like a kind of uh, blind man's bluff game with the, you know, with the, the the neurofeedback saying warmer or colder until the the uh, the trainee. Uh, begins to feel what it's like to be another person in another emotional state. Hmm. Great. Uh, thank you so much for that information, Richard. Um, I now want to get back to Theo for a moment. Um, Theo describes Earth as a Ponzi scheme of a planet. What does he mean? <laughs> I... I I'd have to go back and look at that in context, but it sounds like he's probably describing uh, what we human beings have done in this culture of uh, commodity-mediated, uh, individualist, uh, human exceptionalist, capitalist uh, uh, moment in history where we don't see ourselves as a member of a of a 
interdependent, reciprocal community of living things, but rather we see ourselves as autonomous and as the controllers and masters of the rest of the planet. And as, uh, you know, we see the rest of the living world as resources uh, for our own program. And of course, it's precisely that kind of human exceptionalism that has unleashed uh, all the multiple catastrophes of uh, climate change and species extinction that we're now uh, completely upended by. And I, I think, I think in Theo, there is that glimmer of understanding that something's gone radically wrong in the way that we live or fail to live on earth. We don't realize how lucky this place is and how singular and how many things have had to come together to make the evolution of, of conscious life possible. And I think, I think behind his somewhat bitter, somewhat cynical expression is this notion that, that uh, we humans have to land back on earth and start living on this planet again, rather than in some uh, imaginary place that we fantasize about constructing uh, according to our own rules and desires. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Richard. Um, continuing with Theo, early in the novel, uh, upon Robin and Theo's return to their camp, uh, we learn that Theo has the informational DTs. Uh, and when, when he starts catching up on the news, uh, we learn that their world is um, similar and familiar to ours, but maybe on a slightly different timeline. Uh, did you write this novel prior to the presidential election of 2020? I did. And I, I handed in the, the final draft just before the election mm -hmm. and held my breath along with everyone else as we went into that very mm -hmm. precarious moment for American democracy mm -hmm. and wondered if I would need to rewrite the book uh, in light of what happened. And in fact, I didn't. Uh, the book, as it is published, is a, is a kind of uh, prediction of that moment. And it's a kind of... Uh, exploration of the implications of, of uh, that, that precarious path that, that we were on back then and that we are still on. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right. It's, it, the, the, the way to think about this book is not as political realism. Mm -hmm. There are many things that will be recognizable to a reader. And many, uh, many invitations um, to draw parallels with the world of bewilderment and the world of America in the last four years. Um, but it's probably closer in spirit to what science fiction authors uh, like to call the form of the, the, the near future book, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, this uh, setting a book in an index, in designate time that allows the slight warping of reality because of technologies that haven't quite yet been developed. And that sort of soft futurism of saying, here is our world just a little bit farther down the, this trajectory or down this trajectory. I think of Bewilderment as a kind of near present uh, novel, a book that's unfolding on a, on a kind of parallel earth. One that's, that uses this estrangement to make uh, unusual again and make vivid again something that uh, the, the world that we 
may have thought we understood. Uh, just as Robin, as Theo takes Robin on these explorations to other planets in order to understand what life might or might not be able to do, I am taking the reader to another planet, another Earth-like planet in bewilderment and saying, you know, think again about uh, what's all around you and uh, uh, re-see it uh, through the strangeness of this place. Thank you, Richard. Um, along those lines, I want to talk to you about the idea of a planet, um, specifically our planet, being a simulation. Um, and this question goes back to the brain in a vat theory, possibly even before that. Uh, can you talk to us about the idea that we are living in a simulation and how long it would take humanity to evolve <laughs> to realize this? Uh we did. We we were speaking earlier about the Fermi paradox and all the various uh, possible explanations for why, instead of seeing signs of life everywhere, uh, we're confronted with the great silence. And one of the most provocative uh, explanations for the the Fermi paradox is something called the zoo hypothesis, and it's precisely, uh, or, or it's analogous, let's say, to, to the uh, computer simulation hypothesis. Somehow, uh, we've been set up, uh, either biologically or in, in, in a digital sim simulation, um, by some other order of beings, and we're not really unfolding in the uh, unmediated universe, uh, but we're in this kind of um, experimental uh, test tube. And the, both the zoo hypothesis and the and this computer simulation have been uh, explored for all their rich philosophical implications. I, I know that Nick Bostrom in his book, Superintelligence, uh, explores the simulation hypothesis and suggests that mm. It, you know, if you want to look at it statistically, it may be actually more likely that we're a simulation than that we're an actual uh, material biological uh, unfolding entity. And his, uh, I think the reasoning, I can't quite reproduce it, but it's something like when you think of the size of the universe and the number of habitable planets and the and the age and the, the, the likelihood that there are uh, many, many intelligent civilizations out there and the number of simulations that they might run over the course of their existence as a, as a culture, that is a, is a, is a mind-numbing large number and the, the if, if you just simply think of you know what is more likely being one of those countless uh, uh, experiments or this uh, one fairly unlikely uh, unfolding of uh, animate matter you know out of inanimate on this this one you know beautiful and lucky planet uh, Bostrom concludes that maybe Maybe the simulation is more likely. Uh, I don't know beyond, beyond its power as a as a philosophical koan. Uh, uh, um, I I, uh, I have a little trouble imagining the size of the servers that would be involved to to give the density uh, uh, to experience that uh, simply standing still and contemplating uh, would require. 
Right. Um, thank you, Richard. And thanks for bringing that book up. I'm going to look that one up as soon as we're done here. Um, I do have one more question. You have been very generous with your time, uh, so I don't want to take too much more of it. Again, listeners, this is my favorite book of the year, the best book of the year. I'm now going to have to uh, go back and either visit or revisit your entire catalog. Um, I'm so happy that Bill talked to me about you. But before we go, Richard, I have to ask um, somewhat selfishly as a parent of a five-year-old, there is a moment in this novel where Theo removes Robin from school and begins to homeschool him, uh, a process that Robin embraces and sort of flies through um, at that moment of his life. What do you, Richard, think about the state of the public school system in the United States of America today? And do you think homeschooling is a viable and or preferential option for the youth of today? I was raised in the public school system and went, went you know, from, from kindergarten through uh, graduate school, uh, through public education. I believe the idea of public education is right at the top of uh, the most profound and important and valuable uh, cultural uh, experiments ever run. I think people who give their lives to teach in public school are heroes of the first order. I know that the quality of public education can vary from place to place in this country, but mostly because it's underfunded and we haven't given it the seriousness that we need to. Um, that's what have to what 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 has to change, you know, and and perhaps. Uh, with a with a first lady who is herself an educator, um, we can turn our attention back uh, to the, the the wellspring of of civilization. You know, our our children, um, doing justice to them and and giving them a chance to uh, to reach the full the, their full capacity. I I think it would be a profound mistake to create a culture where that too has to be done privately. And that will, you know, that, that would, could only be executed in the, in differentially according to people's material abilities. We already have a society that's hugely divided between rich and poor and neglecting that great democratic, uh, uh, process whereby all children have exactly uh, equally rich access uh, to becoming the, the, to, to reaching their full capacities would be you know neglecting that would be a terrible mistake well thank you and thank you for writing this outstanding book i can't wait to place it into our customers hands this is the best book of 2021 listeners and you can order it from quailridgebooks.com with free delivery i have been speaking with richard powers author of bewilderment which is published by our friends at ww norton and company richard thank you for joining me thank you so much jason it was it was great fun talking to you Once again, I've been speaking with Richard Powers. Copies of Bewilderment can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free media mail shipping. 
I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, to get one free book, Baby Bewilderment, and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Book